You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, inventors, creators, and leaders in the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Today we meet Robert Beasley. He's the CEO of Fluent, a Florida-based vertically integrated cannabis company with operations also in Pennsylvania and Texas. He felt his company had missed out on opportunities the last few years when the rest of the industry was flying high and MSOs were scooping up licenses in a state-by-state expansion frenzy. But actually, Fluent may have dodged the bullet. While companies were on a spending spree, Robert was brought in to restructure Fluent and scale down operations. Now, as as the rest of the industry is tightening their operations, Fluent is fiscally sound and has its eyes on expansion. Let's meet Robert Beasley. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Waiting on tomorrow. Fridays couldn't come too soon today, although I don't know why. Every day is a work day for me, so. Oh, yeah, I know. Why is that? I don't know. So, yeah, some people are just uh, wired for that, I guess. I'm the same way. Just 24-7. At some point, I determined it was a, a marathon, not a sprint. And so just kind of stay a regular drumbeat every day as opposed to try to, you know, work hard and rest and work hard and rest. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like that 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 rhythm anyway, honestly, just kind of how I, I'm wired. But, um, but uh, and you're in Florida, right? Yep. Yeah. It's cold Florida today. Pensacola. Okay. Actually, my mother uh, used to live in uh, Fort Myers, but she was wiped out in that hurricane last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Our store there uh, was significantly flooded, but surprisingly, it only took about three or four days to get back online. Oh, really? Where in your, where you are, you have a store in Fort Myers? I know I tried to visit some stores when I was down there, but they don't allow out of state uh out of staters to use their medical card from out of state so i wasn't able to yeah there's no reciprocity i sure wish there there would be such a program but it's it doesn't it it, it's not on the florida department of health radar right now they're not interested in doing it we proposed it several times it would be a big um boost revenue boost for us if we could pull it off but not yet Especially since so many people are, you know, I mean, it, it's such a touristy state that you could get so much revenue from from that. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we've got a, uh, you know, we've got a standing population of 21 million and a visiting population of 80. Oh, interesting. So it's significant. Um, just Orlando gets 50 million people a year. Oh, well, Orlando. <laughs> But but I wonder if that has the balance is, well, I guess residents. I mean, there's so many people who are only part-time Floridians, but I guess. And we feel that in our sales during Q3. Um, right now, you know, a lot of our population customers leave and they have homes up north. And so they get out of Florida because it's so hot. And so our, our Q3 numbers are usually lagging. We have a summertime lull. Versus the summertime boom, which is the entire rest of retail in Florida. So we are counter Florida retail, which is interesting. Oh, yeah, right. Well, makes sense. Yeah. Our Q4 is our strongest, uh, one of our strongest when um, those residents 
get out of Canada and New York and wherever they live and come back here? Um, so does that say that most of your revenue is coming from out of state then? Is it? Yeah. It's not, it's not out of state. They are, um, or by in Florida, you have to be a resident, but they are what we would call snowbirds, you know, second residences. They're here in the winter and they are up there, um, somewhere in the summer. Got it. So they're still, so they are actually residents. They yeah. The definition of resident. Right. But because they go away, your third quarter goes down. Got it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I missed that. As far as being in Florida, Texas, and Pennsylvania now, where do you see Fluent going and what is your general vision for the company? And so the company, you know, the company was an early mover in those states and in cannabis in general, uh, but went through a period of, of pretty rapid expansion horizontally, uh, which got the company in financial trouble, quite frankly. And I was asked to come in in September of 20 as the CEO to resolve that situation. And so from September 20 through 21, our, our, our mode was contraction. We had to grow by contraction, identified three core markets. Um, really, Florida is the only core market we have that was driving over 70% of our revenues. And so we invested more in Florida, had Texas on simmer. In Pennsylvania, we opened two more stores. We were at three, one store with a license for three. So all the growth we could do in Pennsylvania was just open two stores. And we've, ha we've had those two stores open now. And so Pennsylvania sits kind of in a, in a, in a limbo idle status for us looking for its next growth opportunity. So we focused on Florida. Um, that was successful uh, as a strategy to turn the company around. We spent some time paying off our debts and liabilities, getting right with the taxes and just about everything else and came into 22 um, really strong and getting stronger as a company. Let exited 22 with a great revenue, great EBITDA, um, had every quarter of 22 be a percentage uh, growth over the last, um, came into 23 strong. And we are now on our feet and stable um, and solid as a company. We have no receivables. Our taxes are well under, uh, under uh, manageable at this point. Can't say they're paid, but they're manageable. Um, and we are in full compliance with all of our instruments of debt. Now we're ready to grow. Uh, and we it took us basically two and a half years to get back to being able to grow. And, you know, it was frustrating because we missed a lot of opportunities, but we missed a lot of false opportunities that didn't pan out either. So we were a little bit fortunate that um, we just weren't in a position to be aggressive during some of the last year or so when a lot of companies were and it has led them into some peril. Um, now we're coming into what they're calling the long winter of cannabis this year. Um, although our growth has been solid, we continue to grow market share in Florida. Texas has finally lifted off. And so in the future, you will see us focus on Texas. We are now active in Texas, whereas before we were not. The legislative conditions just did not promote an actual viable business model. Um, with the recent um, failure of the bill, we still believe that um, Despite being disappointed, we have ample opportunity to grow in Texas. It's a grassroots scenario. We've got to connect the patients to the conditions, to the doctors through the door and, and make them patients. It's, a, it's essentially the same thing we did in 2015, 16 in Florida. Um, and so that's our growth model in Texas. We have a store that will open in Houston 
We are working with relationships with providers in Houston, San Antonio, and Austin. Texas is a big place. Uh, just Houston is 7.3 million people. Uh, oh. Tremendous, third largest, third fastest growing uh, city in the country. Well, we're in New York City and we're a little over 8 million. And I thought that was pretty, pretty impressive. <laughs> Houston is something to see. Um, home of the only 20 lane interstate system uh, in the United States. Uh, it is it is a phenomenal city as far as population and growth and management of that population. It, there's a lot of people there, but it's spread over a pretty good area. Um, so we're excited about Texas. We, we now have a, a foothold. And we now have, because we're a solid company financially, and we're able to invest in Texas a little more than we had been in the past. Um, so our growth plan in Texas is quite simple, grow it. We're one of three licensees. We are probably now the strongest financially uh, with the original, Texas original having some issues. Goodness growth is related to uh, parallel and they've had some issues. Um, and so we, um, we feel pretty good about being uh, the number one contender for growth in Texas. Um, Pennsylvania is interesting. We have now maximized our licensure there and I'm looking for a chance to go vertical. We need to be competitive on margins. There are several different versions of a adult use bill that's floating around with all census being that by January of 25, there'll be adult use in Pennsylvania. Every one of those legislative moves increases the footprint of available stores, which is what we need. We need more retail on the ground. We only have three. Um, there are no more to buy at a reasonable price uh, and we need more issued. We're in the South Central region which includes Mechanicsburg, Hanover, and Anvil. Anvil's just next to Hershey. Um, and it's a good region, but it's not a great region for Pennsylvania. There's certainly better areas to be Philadelphia and over there. Um, yeah. And so we need some store expansion. If we get the store expansion, that will allow us to continue to look at um, a vertical expansion by associating with or building a, a grow facility. Um, but we like Pennsylvania. It's a strong market. It's a solid blue collar labor force that embraces cannabis. Um, our ticket prices are high there. They're heavy consumers. And uh, we plan on staying in Pennsylvania. We're just looking for the right moment of expansion. Florida, coming back to Florida now, which has been our primary focus, we're ready to expand a little bit more incrementally. Competition has really increased in Florida. We've seen margin compression about 23%. Um, we've seen um, uh, the new for licenses come online now. Uh, we've got the applications that were submitted for 23 more licenses, although I, I think that timeline is going to be uh, pretty long. Um, and we have a lot of the recent transactions and mergers which have brought bigger players, the big MSOs in, who are pouring a lot of capital into the market. So, you know, keeping a watchful eye on what we all saw happen in Colorado and New Mexico and California and Oregon, you know, being very careful not to get oversaturated ourselves or overcommitted in Florida. Um, we like our growth there. We're going to continue to grow. We just, we're pulling back on the pace of growth a little bit. Um, and um, we want to continue to move up the charts. We've gone from number 14 to number six. Um, and we'd like to move into about the number four position with TrueLeave holding the number one position outside the universe of the rest of us. 
I don't know. Yeah, really. What's going on there? What's First mover advantage. You know, what truly did was they put a lot of infrastructure on the ground early and they grew a massive quantity of mediocre wheat. The rest of us were growing a small quantity of mediocre wheat and um, they were able to become the Walmart in Florida of, of cannabis. And um, very wise, very aggressive movement early on. Um, and what we've learned is that at least in a medical state, maybe in a rec state, I'm not sure, cannabis consumers are very sticky. They, once they get settled in um, with um, a, a vendor of their choice, I've done a lot of interviews. I have, I, I did not come from what they call the legacy cannabis world, but I've talked to a lot that have. And what I realized is cannabis consumers have always been sticky. You know, once they dial into a source of supply, it's hard to get them off that source. Mm. And so you've got TrueLeaf having soaked up such a large piece of the market. They're sticky customers. We're limited on advertising. We cannot advertise to anyone but our own customers. We have white box uh, materials, no billboards, no radio, no, 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 no. So how do you dislodge a sticky customer? We have been able to do so through high quality flour. Our flour offerings are now are reaching, um, our averages are probably as high, if not the highest in the state as far as THC values and quality flowers. And so we're getting a little bit of migration there, but it's really hard to dislodge uh, a customer from a, from a competing, co competing company with the limited advertising and marketing resources we're allowed. Mm. Um, Interesting. Then after that, as far as growth, you know, we're looking for the first time ever, we're able to look around and take advantage of some of these opportunities that come in. They've always come in. I've looked at a deal a week, I would tell you, if not two or three deals a week um, since I've been here. But in the early days, you know, we had no altitude or airspeed or any, we were just wasting their time to even look at them. Um, now we can look um, the right partner for us. We're not necessarily looking to acquire. We're looking to partner and the right partner for us is is a, a mover in a state that has caught the bus. They're doing what they do, but they've kind of run out of operational knowledge or they've done all they can do with what they have and they need a bigger partner. And we can combine efforts and come in and provide the one asset we now have, which is management and um, know-how. Right. So we're looking for that partner. It's not state specific. I'm going to stay away from the West Coast. But other than that, um, anywhere up the East Coast, anywhere in the central area of the country, um, new state applications we're interested in. So we will continue. We have, um, we have um, an application effort in Alabama that failed, but Alabama's taken a hard reset on their efforts. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but I, I was so curious in one state that I don't follow because I didn't even think it was, it was even going to become up in the running is Texas. And so I found that so interesting that you've already planted uh, you know, fluent in Texas. And now are they, that's probably like one of the few states that I really am not constantly looking at, but are, do they have medical, are they medical? State? They're medical. Yeah. So Texas is, is, is really underneath the radar of a lot of people because yeah. there's only three licensees. There only, there ever only has been three licensees. Um, they were CBD at first and then, and then they were, they were medical, then CBD and then THC, low THC, now THC, no flower. And so it's just an evolution of available products to the Texas consumers and patients. 
conditions were limited at first and then expanded slightly. They The last time conditions were added, PTSD was added, which is what I'd call a soft condition versus some of the other more um, uh, harder conditions as far as you know physical conditions. Um, and so it's been growing slowly. You have the governor's office, particularly, I believe, the lieutenant governor that's just an, not an advocate of cannabis and is an adversary of its growth. And so every time uh, legislation gets put out there, the, there's a suppression of that effort. That's why you've seen it fail multiple times. Then you have the other real oddity that the legislative group only meets every other year. And so this was our ch chance this year. Two years ago when they met, we had a chance to get a bill in play, we think, and then the ice storm hit and they spent almost the entire session dealing with the emergency relate measures related to the ice storm. And so it was really distracted off of everything, including cannabis. Uh, and so it's a what I would call a fairly typical Southern state. It, it started real slow. There's a there's a movement there. The consumers want it. But, you know, there's certainly opposition groups. And over time, what has to happen is what happens in every Southern state and maybe every state. I don't know. But, you know, the culture around cannabis changes and the way it changes, I've watched it and, and the way it changes is very subtle. It's when people that others know become advocates of it or patients of it. And I like to always say, you know, Aunt Susie, who's a churchgoer, all of a sudden discovers the TH cream helps her with her neuropathy on her feet her diabetes and she starts using it and then she tells her pastor and then she tells her nephew and her nephew says well aunt, aunt susie's not a dope head you know aunt susie's not a, a a drug user there must be something to this and then there's a softening of this hard hard rhetoric against it and then at the same time we open a few shops there's not a line of 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 Cretans laying in the gutters out front because they've used this gateway drug that the bad doesn't happen. The good starts to prevail and it just slowly changes. And next thing you know, everyone softens and it opens up. And, yeah. and, and the rate of which that occurs, I think, is organic. I think we can help it by general awareness and in, in recruiting customers in that have conditions that are eligible because the more people who have conditions that start using products um, and they start realizing there's a wide range of available products, a lot of which do not get you high, but, but alleviate pain and inflammation. And as we start to just break it down these barriers, organically, it happens. And I wish I could tell you the magic formula where a company like us could push a button or do these things to make it happen. But I think it's a slow process, regardless of what we do. Yeah, so it's interesting, kind of, it's, it's the, the same market, you know, like in Florida, you're dealing with a lot of elderly people. I feel like we softened that group or are softening that group with CBD and like topical topical treatments uh, that the elderly uh, use. And I've seen that in my own circle where, you know, my mother-in-law, she swears by topical CBD for neuropathy, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like easy to talk to her about you know, cannabis and things like that. And it's not this taboo subject. So, um, but, but are you, so if you're medical in Texas, are you able to, I mean, it's not just hemp-based products. It's, it's THC. It's THC products. And, and it can be high THC if they qualify for medical. Yes. 
Okay. So, and it's grown in state has to be it's vertical. We are a vertical licensee in Texas, just like Florida. Uh, okay. So we grow it, manufacture, produce it, package it, sell it. Ah, uh, okay. Stem seed to sale. Okay. And so you're saying, and then moving over to Pennsylvania, you're saying that you need to uh, get a vertical license there as well to increase the you market. Know, a lot of states like Pennsylvania do not have a vertical license per se, but you can go vertical in your business model by accumulating licenses at every level. So you well, can acquire so, most states, there may be an exception to this rule and I'm just not aware of it, but most states you can hold multiple licenses at the various levels of entry. Now, some elect not to, some just do retail, some just do manufacturing. But if you were interested in the being vertical and, and you know, the way we see the world is how we, we were derived, which was through Florida, which is vertical. Vertical is the most difficult uh, way to operate. It's a lot easier to have a storefront, buy it wholesale, sell it retail. Very easy business model. It's just a typical retail business model. Your product just happens to be cannabis. Um, vertical is uh, is not at least existent in, in this country today, a, a normal business model. The orange grower with the orange trees doesn't manufacture the orange juice or run the store that sells the orange juice, not typically. And so you, you've we've lost in this country because of our size now and scale, um, most of our vertical businesses. Um, but in our case, licensure is available for vertical. And when you can figure it out and when you can get all the three or four different companies working in a balanced scenario, then you're very efficient and you can be very competitive uh, because you're not buying. There's no profit insertion at any of your levels. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe in New York, though, you are not allowed I mean, it's not a vertically integrated state, and they—I think—they're very strict about making sure that you do not have a license. If you have one particular license in retail, you cannot be an owner of a license in another. I'm pretty sure that's the guy. I, I think that's true for some of the New York licensing. I do believe that there is a limited number, and I could not tell you how many. It may be three, five, or ten of of pure verticals. There are—I believe there are a couple of vertical licenses available in New York. Medical. Medical. That is correct. I'm sorry. Um, Medical only for recreational, not. That, that that may be true. We're not in New York. Um, I have yeah. looked at New York. I like it as a state. It has had a very uh, slow stumbling start um, with a lot of legislative good intent gone executed poorly. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a good state to be in. We'd like to be in it one day. We're just kind of letting the dust settle. Yes, I would too. Yeah, it's it's there's just too much chaos here. I, I wouldn't want to be in it right now. Um, Same with New Jersey. Um, you know, good intentions um, with the social equity program. I, um, I I feel like I could have helped, but you know, um, it, it 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 didn't start and and it hasn't been executed the way everyone expected or, or desired, but with good intentions. And it just now has to sort itself out for a year or so. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so as, as a vertically integrated company and for a brand, a brand who sells in your store, do you think that it's fair to just brands? Like, do you in your stores, do you push your brands ahead? Like, you know, I, 
it always just seems like an unfair model, but I know it is in other in other industries. It's not so unusual to be like a Sephora and manufacture your products and have your retail store. But I I just wonder, you know, are the bud tenders pushing fluent products first, or you know, or how, so, how does that synergy work with brands, and how do you? So it's it's been interesting, and it it doesn't necessarily relate to the vertical aspect. What the restriction is on branding, at least in Florida, goes back to the advertising restrictions. It's not that we're vertical. We do not have other brands in our stores. We have Fluent Brand. That's it. We have a few relationships with some product manufacturers that assist us in the formulations and provide the base product. The best example is Smokies. We, Smokies is a company out of Oregon. They help, they assist us through a relationship partnership with um, our edibles, but they're not necessarily just a brand for us because they do the formulations. They provide the base product. They provide a lot of the IT and, and know how to make the product. So they're more of a manufacturing partner for which we then uh, attribute their brand on our packaging. But because the packaging is white with no color, with no fancy lettering or scripting, you know, what is a brand at some point? You know, a brand is a mark, which we can't have, colors, which we can't have, you know, attributable language, which we can't have. And so brand effectiveness, if it's just what I call putting your sticker on our box, gets us no value. And as a corollary, we've had a very difficult time from a business point of view, allowing brands to come in and be on our shelves because what they provide for us value-wise is very limited once you strip them down and they comply with our advertising. Um, I had a, a, a pretty interesting meeting that's well-known now with a big California brand. They had made it big in California. And they, they produce nothing, though. They stuck their sticker on white box materials, and they have done phenomenal. And they sat for a few minutes in Vegas and told me how we were doing it all wrong, um, that we didn't use colors on our products, and we didn't use the billboards. You know, they use billboards, and they do all this. And I just sat there and listened and thought, you know, we, owe, we know how to use a billboard in Florida. Like, there's plenty of them. Um, but we're not allowed to. You know, we know how to use color. We, we, you know, the palette's available in Florida, not just California. We've got all the colors you do, um, but we're not allowed to use them. So maybe once you're restricted in the box that we are, with all the limitations that we are, your brand falls apart because you're just a sticker. And we can't have a relationship with a sticker and pay you three, five, 10% of our revenues just to put your sticker. Once I strip your sticker out of color and marks and no weed symbols, and no reference to anything that would uh, uh, generate interest of children, which is broadly interpreted, and no reference to anything that would be illegal or illicit, which is broadly interpreted. So brands can't make it unless you're a brand that also provides a service or a product for which we can become a manufacturing partner. Right, interesting. But but if, in Pennsylvania, that's a different story. Totally different market. Pennsylvania is yeah. totally different market. You know we. We are federally illegal. As a result, we are limited by state regulation and the state regulation and licensing schemes are vastly different from state to state. Yeah. And so I, Florida is very different than Pennsylvania. 
both of them are very different from Texas. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we have to have a very split personality in our compliance department because, you know, they, that just doesn't cross reference. And, you know, it makes advertising more difficult because the things we do in Florida, we, we, things we do in Texas, we can't do in Florida. Yeah. Pennsylvania is not a vertically based state. And while the Department of Health of Pennsylvania is very strict in so many ways, they're a little looser on advertising. They're a little looser on product labeling, on packaging. All of their uh, deliverable restrictions are, are, are less. And as a result, it's also a wholesale resale market. So a lot of those Western brands have made it into Pennsylvania. They're on our shelves in Pennsylvania and they do quite well. And um, I would love to know, um, I just have a couple more questions for you. I don't want to take up too much more time, but what, what is your main core demographic? I guess I imagine it, it goes from, differs from town to town, but do you, have you captured the elderly community? And I'm talking about like 75 and above, 70 and above, 70s. You know what I mean? Like, of course we have the 50, 45 to 65 group, people coming back to cannabis, old users, but are are the older ones um, warming up to it? Are, are they becoming customers now? So I used to say that our, our typical patient profile was 53 year old white male. First time user to cannabis in Florida. I'm just talking about Florida for a minute. Yeah. Um, and at that time, when I would use that statistic, um, we were fairly limited on our number of SKUs that we offered as far as administrative of product and product administration. Um, I can tell you that as we added um, creams, capsules, more um, topicals, yeah, drops, we started to get into and pick up the above 53 age group. Um, you know, what isn't successful in that age group? Inhalants are not successful. Flower is not successful. All right, so if you take away our vape pens and our flower, flower is 42, 40, I'm sorry, 46%. Vape's probably around 40%. That's 86% of our, of our products sold. And so after you just take those out, because those are not successful in the older market, then it starts to become... Uh, hardly measurable the contribution of that older segment because they love the creams, but creams are less than a percent of our total sales. And so I think the answer, a long-winded answer to your question is yes, we have seen an inc as we provided methods of administration and dosage that was pure medical and 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 more um, appropriate for their needs. Um, and again, I go to topicals and uh, capsules, uh, suppositories, um, drops. Um, as we provided more of those SKUs over the years, we have definitely picked up that segment. Um, but it's still because of the product profile of sales represents a very, very small piece of our business. But the future is bright for that group, I, right? I, I think that... Um, you know, I, I, I was not a user or anything before three years ago. And, and so I didn't come out of the legacy or recreational market. I came into this business because of its medical properties and because I believed in it uh, after studying it long and hard myself. Um, and I think that um, particularly our company, um, as we continue to research and pioneer and develop products that fill that segment, we will find that they readily come to it if we can find something that works for them. Yeah. Um, and so the answer is yes, it continues to grow. I do not see a great deal of resistance. Although 
before I was involved of this business, I was involved in setting up a series of medical clinics and um, the elderly groups, the older groups, I hate to use the word elderly because I'm talking outside of 53. And, and of course that starts to include all of us. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it, they were slow to start. Um, but I really believe that's because we just didn't have products that they could use. Mm -hmm. um, and as we were able to formulate the more complicated administrative dose uh, methods of taking it and using it, we have been able to pick them up. I don't, I don't think there's actually a resistance to it. Um, you know, there's going to be subgroups within that population, just like there's subgroups within any population. But last point on that, I know it's a complicated answer because it's a complicated question. Um, it's also very geographical in Florida. Um, we have some of our stores service areas of intense, high-density, retired populations. Um, we have in Florida, the villages down in Central Florida. And, you know, every customer is over 70 there, right? Because every resident's over 70. Yeah. Um, Fort Myers, Naples, um, these areas that are traditionally known as retirement communities, you will see that our customer profile leans towards an older group. But that's just a true reflection of the service, the population we're servicing. It's not that you know, those stores are selling more to an older group. It's just there's statistically more older people. Right. Um, and so I, I think they, you know, I think those er high density areas just allow us an opportunity to get greater circulation, greater word out. Um, and uh, we've been trying very uh, desperately to, to penetrate into the villages. You know, you're not allowed in there from a retail point of view. And so we have a couple stores around the periphery and we're, we're providing information in because we really do believe that um, if there was a, a, you know, as adoption in there picks up, yeah. it will be a good customer base for us. And talk about word of mouth that would just, you know, it's, it's like wildfire through those little communities, those senior communities. I, I heard another store, I forgot what state it was in, but they had a lot of great success with um, doing tour bus guides, you know, with the elderly communities, like someone going to into that community, picking them up, bringing them to the store. And like, you know, like during COVID, nobody can, no one else can come into the store unless you're over 65, between 10 and 11. And then they get a whole tour and to feel comfortable and not feel so intimidated to coming in. But Florida probably was wouldn't allow that anyway. <laughs> we didn't have COVID in Florida. Governor said so. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> um, and and another thing, I I, I did read that um, when you before you became CEO of Fluent, that you were instrumental in going into the different dispensaries and I guess re, re redoing them or re building them out, um, and that that seemed to be kind of your expertise. Is there any trick to that that you think that other people are doing wrong or that you think is really important to the dispensary? uh design it's yeah and it wasn't so i was a consultant for this company at first for the first nine months before i was asked to be ceo um and i had i had stood up other companies throughout the country where the license was obtained and we just had to basically start the company up from scratch so i wasn't an expert necessarily in rebuilding or restructuring a company i had just built several and um had seen several fail and so um when I came in, um, it wasn't the dispensary itself level, because you remember in a vertical company, we are three or maybe four companies together. We are an agricultural cultivation company. We grow it. Then we manufacture and process it and ship it. And then we retail sell it. And so really, 
it's three different companies. And so if I had to say within a vertically integrated company, the one thing you have to achieve to be successful is balance. You can't have more shelf space than you have product to feed it. You can't have more product inbound in feeding the system than you have manufacturing capability. And so you have to achieve balance across. And when I got here into Fluent, they were out of balance. The focus and emphasis, and I'd like to say this was a terrible oversight by prior management. The reality is, it's what the market, it's how the market looked at cannabis back then. The emphasis was on number of doors, stores. So when I first got here, we had 20 something stores, but they were running out of product by 11 a.m. Because we had to grow it to sell it. And we weren't strong in cultivation. And so I'm on the job a few days and market analysts and reporters and everything kept asking me, how many stores do you have? And I said, well, I will tell you that, but it doesn't matter one bit how many stores we have. We're not the gap. You know, we, we don't get to buy from overseas and put products on our shelves. We have to grow it. And so really the question you should be asking is, what is your ratio of balance between your production capability and your sales capability? That was the secret. Um, and, it, and unfortunately, it's a very difficult equation to fix because you have to fix each component and bring it into balance. Once we got into balance with 22 stores, then I was able to increase the retail footprint to 35, 36 stores. Well, at 35, 36 stores, because we brought up our other segments, we're now in balance Right. But at maximum balance capacity, we have to now go to the other segment of the business and increase it. I like to say it's like one of those old equalizers. You can't just jam the treble up because you need some bass too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was the trick to this company's repair. But it wasn't just the dispensary issue. In the, Inside of the dispensaries, the, the trick to the, those, those stores is operational efficiency. Um, I just told everyone on the dispensary side from the assistant general manager up to go watch the movie, The Founder, which is the story of McDonald's, the Ray Kroc's story. Oh. It's all about Ray Kroc and what he did or he didn't, but there's a piece of that movie that's, that's very dynamic, which is the what the McDonald's brothers did, most importantly, their food product was just normal, was establish the efficiency of workflow within the space. And and, and we're still striving to achieve our most efficient workflow as far as movement, staffing, uh, product flow, inventory control. And so, you know, cannabis comes from a legacy culture and it comes from a very low scale. All of the all the drug dealing and growing that happened, except for the stuff that came from South America, was at a very low scale. And so the legacy knowledge of how you deal with cannabis is not scalable, typically in the cultivation side or in the retail side, you know, we're, we're not pitching dime bags anymore. So we're moving a hundred, almost a million units a month and now we're at scale. And, mm -hmm. and so scale kills cannabis in its growth efforts. Oh, because of the imbalance. Because of the imbalance. Yeah, oh my gosh, that is so interesting. It's so true. When you look at all these companies, and I, I mean, being from New York, I, I I see it, you know, unfortunately, even not with the vertically integrated, but with the stores trying to launch, the farmers have all this product in the in their warehouse and we can't get it out there and we can't move it because we were, we're so imbalanced in the stores and, and what the, where the product is and stuff. And then I, I will just end it on, um, I'm just curious, what you what worries you every day like what are your just worries when you 
just come to work every day or think every day and 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 I guess how from do you, a business point of view? Yeah, from a business point of view. <laughs> the number one thing that worries me every day is the health and safety of my children. But but after that, in the business point of view, um, you know, there's gonna be a lot of changes with federal either decriminalization or legalization. Those steps need to be done just right. 39, 40 states now with established programs. I think the horse has left the barn on whether the feds are going to be able to regulate it or not, or whether the FDA is going to come in. I, I hope they stay out of it now. The flip side of that is as we decriminalize or we deschedule the effect of the dormant commerce clause, not, not something you hear about much in business, but you hear about a lot in law. And yeah. the effect of the dormant commerce clause is essentially based on the constitution it says, you know, no state can enact a, a law which impairs the rights of another state. It, it, it's meant for the states to be cooperative and recognize and full faith and credit of the other states. Um, our biggest competition tomorrow in that state situation is the West Coast because it costs so much more for us in Florida and in the Southeast to produce this product because we have to produce it indoors and cannabis does not like Florida. It doesn't like wet feet and the bud structure is such that it doesn't like a lot of humidity, but we happen to have a lot of rain and a lot of humidity. You want to grow cannabis perfectly, grow it in Humboldt County, California, right? Mm -hmm. You grow it in Southern Oregon, what they call the Emerald Triangle. You can grow it outdoors beautifully. Well, if the commerce clause comes into play for us, then all of that product, which by the way, already moves to the East, it all goes to your state. Um, it, it will become legal to move it. And both Oregon and California have already passed, passed Commerce Clause statutes allowing and promoting the movement of cannabis outside their state boundaries. They're getting ready to flood from the West to the East with a fairly high quality, low cost product. Well, what do you do if you're sitting in Florida and you've spent $60 million building an indoor grow facility and then the truck arrives from California at $7 a gram cheaper than you can grow it for? Oh, that worries me. Yeah, that's the prop. That's the problem with this industry. It's all these these unforeseen or these factors we can't control, like what's happening in New York right now with the with the state not being able to implement what they wanted to do in the social equity. Um, we pulled out of Michigan because Michigan was not regulating in doing the same thing New York's now not doing. Michigan was allowing without regulation and enforcement, massive amounts of THC to come in from California. And when you're in a highly regulated market and you're a regulated body, you depend on the regulators to do their job because if they're not, then you're the only one following the rules and you can't survive. Honestly, oh, so crazy. Must be tough sitting in your seat, <laughs> but sounds great. Anyway. It's been a wild ride. <laughs> it's only been a couple of years. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh my God. I, but I think for, uh, you know, I, I think there'll be good things once we get through this. I hope we can all hang in there. That's for sure. Cause I, I love this industry and I think there's a lot of potential in the future medically and, you know, recreationally, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Thank you so much, Robert, for um, very well. coming to my podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com.
Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.